The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2015th January Leaders Retreat with Mike Heron, with the CO Global Resource Center. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. But, uh... Really? It's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, the best, the best I could do was, uh, best I could do was the nursery line, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Paul Poteet, how about it? Here we go. Paul Poteet takes care of his sheep <laughs> with all his staff behind him. The chocolate treats Chocolate sweets and breakfast treats and worship songs never find them. How about that? All right. Yeah. Yeah. We can get a little, little beatbox going because I think that's just, yeah, a little sound. That's the best I can do with nursery rhyme, though. All right. I got a little something, something. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little. A little something. Um, I don't know how you define missions. Um, here's a couple of different definitions um, that uh, I think are clear and helpful. Uh, maybe a cosmic definition. You read in the book of Acts where the first verse talks about uh, Luke is saying, he's writing to Theophilus and he says, uh, I wrote down to you all the things that Jesus began to do. And the implications in the book of Acts is, uh, and he continues to do. So missions at some level is, are, is all the things that Jesus began to do and continues to do and teach in the world. That's one level. And another level, you, you could say missions is the coming of God's heavenly kingdom onto the earth. You know, Jesus' prayer, uh, when he taught us in the Lord's Prayer to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So missions at some level is the coming of the kingdom of God on the earth. But I like to think about it at a personal level. It's really, missions is asking unlikely people to do the impossible. Asking unlikely people to do the impossible. I don't know about you today, but I definitely, in my life, constantly feel like I'm really not up for the task of missions because I know that I'm an unlikely person. And uh, you can listen to stories and wonder at times if missions is about you know, people with great abilities, uh, persuading, influencing, uh, uh, creating, uh, you know, a group, carousing people together uh, for, you know, greater dynamic and, um, you know, transformative purposes. But really, missions is, the, the work of God is really the work that God does through unlikely people and he uses unlikely people to do not just hard things, to do impossible things. Because the things that we're called to do, we actually have no ability to do them. You can't change somebody's heart. You can't convince somebody that Jesus is the most important, not just idea, but person and relationship that anyone should have. You can't do that. 
And that's why I think this, the seeds analogy last night was very helpful, because it's a reminder to us that what God does is he takes us and transforms us into men and women of faith who are willing to drop seeds of gospel mission out in faith, believing that he will grow them and he will multiply them and he will use them to change people's lives. Now, you're familiar with the Great Commission, the mission, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. In many ways, it's a, really what a quiet time or a devotional is supposed to be every day, is a reminder of these basic things. God has called you to himself, and by virtue of the fact that you have been called to him, he now is entrusting you with a mission, and it's his mission. And he says that, I want you to grow in this relationship to me in such a way. That idea of baptizing and teaching is, you know, this idea that I want your whole life, I want your whole life, to be consumed with my love and consumed with my purpose. Uh, and then I want that love and that purpose to flow through you. Uh, you see, Jesus' command to the disciples was to make disciples. And obviously, part of making disciples was to teach those disciples that uh, Jesus was discipling for them to make disciples, and part of the challenge for them is that they would make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, as we said last night. Really, every day in your spiritual life and quiet time is to remind you of those things. Now, I want to tell you about two guys that I uh, played football with in college, one uh, named Lewis Billups and the other named Dwayne Williams. There's a number of things they have in common, and then one thing uh, that... Uh, is different about uh, these two guys. But one is uh, they both played with me on the same football team. We were receivers together. They were all-conference and all-Americans. Um, they uh, went on and had distinguished careers beyond college. Uh, Lewis, uh, initially for the Cincinnati Bengals and then with the Green Bay Packers. Um, Dwayne... Uh, military career, he became a uh, Special Forces Army Ranger and um, officer eventually went on uh, and uh, was working at the Pentagon. But they also have this in common. They both died before they turned 40 years of age. When I think about my group of friends in college, and the guys that I spent the most time with were the receivers on the football team. There was really eight of us and a couple of guys coming in and out, about five of us that went four years through. These were two of the five of my closest uh, friends. And in their 30s, uh, early 40s, they, they're dead. Now, I say that because death... And the reality of death causes us to think about mission in a totally different way. Because there's no doubt that you can spend the next 20 or 30 years of your life on a mission, doing something that you believe advances your personal uh, esteem or 
you know, possibly your wealth and uh, position and status in society, but death is the great equalizer. And death causes us to ask the question, is anything we do in this life meaningful? And what does what we do in this life, uh, how does that impact or what does that have to do with life uh, to come? So we're talking about missions and, uh, and the mission of God and uh, really making disciples involves four phases here. First, evangelism, which is, uh, you see that in Mark 1, 14 through 17. And then discipleship, or establishing uh, those followers of Christ. Um, you kind of see that growing out uh, from discipleship to leadership development, equipping those to be followers. And then missions, exporting them to reach the lost, helping disciples grow and uh, transforming the world, uh, creating a movement. And... Um, I have a little video, and when I put it together, it feels like the video is pretty lighthearted, and uh, it's a clip from a movie, and uh, and I've gotten pretty heavy here talking about death. So uh, we're going to show the video because it's the next thing on the uh, on the. But it's a movie that I like. It was called it's called Night's Tales. I don't know if y'all are too young to have ever seen. Yes, in honor of my uh, the night in shining armor, my friend Andrew Knight. And, uh, and uh, this is a little clip when these band of guys are trying to work through some sense of you know, purpose. They've been basically um, servants, indentured servants of sorts, uh, working for a knight who has died. And uh, one of the, these guys, Heath Ledger, has impersonated this knight in a, um, in a jousting battle. He's won some money, and they're facing the question, what do we do next? So that's the background. Let me show you. It's a little free mix up here. Fifteen silver coins. Do you want that? Side for the limb. For what? Side for Roland. Do it going straight on to it. Straight to the top for me. Your pie. Three tarts. Fancy cakes with peppermint cream. We can do this. Yeah, we've done it, boy. That's silver in your hand. I mean, we can do this. We can be champions. Give us your coins. Now, come on, give me your coins. Right. Right, now that's one for you. And one for you. Which leaves 13. That's 13 for trading and outfitting. But I don't know why in a month from now. In one month we could spend a price bigger than this one. In one month we could be on our way to glory and riches none of us have dreamed of. In one month we could be laid in a ditch with Selector. I don't want glory and riches, William. I just want to go home. Pansy cakes with peppermint cream. Dill veal balls with squash fritters. I'll take my part now. It's the guts to take the blow, to strike from Guts I have. And technique? I have a month to learn that. Besides, the sword. Name a man better with a sword than I. In the practice ring. You're not a noble bird. Or so we lie. 
How did the nobles become noble in the first place, huh? They took it at the tip of the sword. I'll do it with a lance. A blunt is that what's No matter what, a man can change his start. And I won't spend the rest of my life as nothing. That is nothing. And nothing is right like glory will take. We say sons of peasants. Glory and riches and stars are beyond our grasp, but our bulls done it. That dream can come true. <laughs> If you can take your coins, go with him, eat cake. But if you can't, you come with me. <laughs> you see, money doesn't matter. Can I, can I see my life benefit, you know, of course, in the story, it's just for their own self-glory. Uh, but, but the contrast there with the two guys, his buddies are saying, you know, I want a full stomach. That's a dream, That's a dream that can come true. And, uh, you know, can you give up some of these coins with a vision to invest in something that are going to bring greater? Well, at some level, that is the pathway uh, that is the pathway to greater missional um, success. And that's really what God calls us to do, is a kind of transfer here in the mission. And uh, I want to talk to you, let's go back to the, I want to talk to you about this mission and how it's played itself out. Uh, for uh, historically, most, most people always worked in the family business. When you're now getting ready to graduate, you're asking the question, what am I going to what am I going to major in? Uh, what careers am I interested in? Generally, that was already decided for you. Either your government said you're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to require you to be transcripted to the, uh, work in the military, um, or we, uh, your family was going to say, we're farmers, you're a farmer, we take care of cattle, and you take care of cattle. You know, for the most part, uh, mission was driven by living out the family's vision and the family's commitments. Really, discipleship is that very same thing. Discipleship is learning the family business and learning what our Father has called us to do and what work He wants done in the world. You see that in Colossians 1. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of, his, of, of the Son of whom He loves. And that verse really reflects the fact that this kingdom is a relational kingdom. And one of the things that Andrew and Paul uh, asked me to do is, as I'm talking, I want to share some practical things of things I've seen college students do to make you know, significant missional impact on their college campuses. And, and we'll walk through this talk in discipleship, and I'm going to give you five practical things. But one, it, it sounds um, you know, maybe self-evident or clear, but 
Number one, first and foremost, uh, I've seen that when a handful of students make a commitment that we will live our lives together on mission, it transforms. I've seen campuses transform in a four or five year time frame just because a handful of students, that's not a thousand students necessarily, it's not even 50 students, oftentimes it's just two or three that just say, we are going to live our lives on mission. Now I hope that every person here today and this weekend is here because you've decided, I want to live my life on mission. Uh, Jesus even said that uh, at 12 years of age, they couldn't find him, and uh, they went back to the temple, and uh, his uh, parents were scolding him, you know, you didn't let, let us know where you were, and he said, didn't you know, <laughs> didn't you know, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? And I would say that whether it's St. Cloud State or the youth or um, St. Thomas or Northwestern or Bethel, whatever campus that you're on, if there's something uh, that's going to grow of a spiritual nature that's going to have a pervasive impact on your campus, it's really going to grow because a handful of students say, well, you know what? We're going to live on mission together. Just ask you that this uh, this morning. Are you living on mission together with somebody else? Maybe in your dorm, maybe in your sorority, maybe on your athletic team. I'll tell you, that's first and foremost the most important commitment you need to make, especially if you're going to um, grow and transfer that to other people. Think about these passages here. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then Luke 10. Certain lawyers stood and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All your strength and all your mind. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. And then he asked, Wishing to be justified, uh, he asked, Who is my neighbor? This is the story of the Good Samaritan. I won't read that to you. Uh, but really, discipleship... I like to say is love training. Discipleship is learning how to live in the love of God. It starts by, uh, you know, discipleship started by love, and it's sustained by love, and it's spread by love. So, number one, you must immerse yourself in the truth that you're loved by God and that you can trust Him. You're justified. You're adopted. You're called a friend of God. So, part of that commitment of saying, I'm going to live on mission, is being committed to living in the love of God. At some level, that's what a quiet time is supposed to be. That's what should happen at your discipleship group. Every time you go to church, it's a reminder to you that you have been called out of darkness into light. You belong to Him. And by virtue of the fact that He loves you, you now have a mission. You have a purpose. And so every, every, every day... You need to get up, you need to read your Bible to remind you that you belong to Him. And that's really what discipleship is. It's love training. Now, um, part of how you grow in loving Him is you grow in learning how to live in repentance and faith. Giving up your possessions, letting go of these lesser loves in order to embrace 
the greater love uh, that belongs that belongs to you in your relationship with Him. And, and I think about it as emptying and filling. Every day, every morning, and every day, you need to have a period of time where you're emptying yourself of your longings for lesser loves and by faith filling yourself, embracing, taking, trusting uh, the greater promises of God and the person of Christ. I, I quoted this verse earlier. In the same manner that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So discipleship is love training. It starts with this commitment, uh, a group of people who say, we're going to live on mission together. But I think it's a step beyond that, and this is where I've seen, um, uh, you might say, a qualitative difference in impact. Uh, the second thing I would say is that students who make a decision that they're never going to say no to an opportunity to grow in their faith. Have you decided I'm going to live on a mission together with someone else? Well, secondly, have you decided that I will never say no to an opportunity to grow spiritually? Now, you think about that, you can say, now, wait a minute, Mike, you just follow that all the way through. I'd never go to class. You know, I could never have a job. I could anyway. But practically speaking, what I'm talking about is that you take, advantages of, you take advantage of opportunities that present you to ensure that you're growing spiritually and making Christ a priority. It's real simple. When those opportunities come to you, you say yes to them. And you know, when you do that, you grow in your love and experience of Christ, and you grow in learning how to love other people. It's really not all that complicated. And when things get all complex and complicated, and I don't know about this, and I don't know about that weekend, i got a lot of things to do, you know, really, probably, it's, it's an issue of repentance and faith. I'm probably more interested in lesser loves, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I want to repent of those things, and I want to take hold of the greater loves. Uh, just saying yes to opportunities to grow. It sounds kind of simple, but when I uh, went on the Summer Beach Project, uh, or I went on a conference, or I got in a discipleship group, or I said that I was going to, um, you know, I, went, I started going to a church that required us to do a lot of setup. It was a church that was like a church plant. So I was going to go an hour early, give up an hour of sleep on Sunday morning to help set up. Just a small opportunity for me to grow in my service to Christ. That's really, you know, the seeds of faith that cause a qualitative um, missional difference in a, in a life change. Okay. Um, so we've got to grow, we've got to grow and immerse ourselves in learning about God's love for us, but we also must learn to love in a community of discipleship and learning love from a community of discipleship. Um, in Acts 2, it's interesting, you know in Acts 2 where it talks about that um, they were all selling all their possessions and giving to everyone who had need? Um, do you ever wonder, well, why did they need to be selling all their possessions? Did they just lead a lot of people to Christ that were homeless and had no possessions? You know, what, why did, what, why, what's that talking about there? If you go back and read uh, the story, it was right around this festival called Pentecost. And Pentecost was a religious festival, a Jewish religious festival, where people from all across, Jews from all around the world had come to Jerusalem. Um, and so you had, it has a long list of, of people there in Acts 2 that had traveled from in pilgrimage, on pilgrimage from 
Cyprus, Cyrene, you know, Crete, it names all these places, Africa, the Middle East, they traveled all over uh, to be at this festival, and at Pentecost, Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit falls, they're changed, it says 3,000 people are saved, and they think that that's probably 3,000 families of sorts, so it's probably six or 7,000 people were saved. And then it says that they had everything in common, they were uh, all together sharing as anyone would have a need. Well, what happened? The implication is that these people had come to Jerusalem, they had this head-on collision with Jesus Christ, and they didn't leave. And so they, they were like, you know, no longer will my geography define me, no longer will my ethnicity define me, no longer will my vocation define me, no longer will my family define me, but now my relationship with Christ is the most definitive truth about me. I'm going to order everything about me around my relationship with Christ. So you kind of think about it. The guy, the family from, from Crete, so to speak, who had pilgrimed uh, with his family to Jerusalem, and then they didn't return. And it's like six months later. Well, what happened to... What would the family from Crete's name be? Luigi? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, family from Cyprus. Would they be Luigi? Like Marcus Baghdadis. Huh? Marcos Baghdadis. He plays fantasy from Cyprus. Marcos Baghdadis. So Baghdadis. Where is our son, Marcos? You know, he, he, they probably thought he was dead, right? Let's well, send somebody to go find out. And you think about it. All these other people coming in to check on the people that never left. And they had, what had become central to their life was this relationship with Christ and the love that they had for that community. And so really, for a number of years, evangelism in the book of Acts was people just coming on pilgrimage and then sharing, let me tell you why we stayed. Let me tell you why we didn't go home. And let me share with you how Christ has changed our lives. It was kind of a, uh, uh, it was a, it was a pilgrimage in long before Acts 8 did, which all of a sudden evangelism began to be a pilgrimage out after the persecution. Um, but what were they doing? They were learning how to live in community. And uh, that's really agape love that teaches us um, the truth, that teaches us how to grow in grace and in truth, what it means to really be loved by God. Um, I included just a number of passages. If you start just listing out the one another passages in the Bible, it's really pretty phenomenal um, how many, in the New Testament, how many times that the writers of the New Testament tell us that we need to be doing something to, with, or for one another. Just look at a few of these right here. John 13, love one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Uh, let us pursue the things that make peace, building up one another. Accept one another, Romans 15. Admonish one another. Galatians 5, through love, serve one another. Ephesians 4, be patient to one another in love. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Ephesians 5, be subject to one another. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important. There's more. Colossians 3, teach and admonish one another. 
1 Thessalonians 4, comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another, build one another up. Hebrews 3, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still today. There's even more. Hebrews 10, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. 1 Peter 4, fervent, uh, love, or keep fervent in your love for one another because your love covers a multitude of of sin. Now, are you are you living in community with one another and really growing in what it means to love? And if you're not, I'm just telling you, then you are not living uh, in the mission and in the discipleship that Christ has called you to. Part of why you're here, I hope, is because you're committed to living in this kind of one another lifestyle. Let me give you another another. Uh, uh, commitment. I said one is a commitment where a group on campus decides that we're going to live on mission. And secondly, um, I said that you're willing to take steps of growth or opportunities of growth. Never say no to opportunities. A third thing I would say is that where I've seen campus ministries really flourish are places where people are regularly <coughs> praying with one another and praying for one another. One of the ways that you demonstrate that you're for your brother or your sister in Christ is that you're praying for one another. And uh, I just want you to know, prayer for me is never convenient. It's at some level when I begin, rarely enjoyable. And it feels, it feels the most like work and sacrifice and raw faith of anything that I do in the Christian life. Think about that for just a second. I can wake up and really be excited to read my Bible. I love to share my faith. I love to talk to people about Christ. I love discipleship groups. I love teaching. I don't love prayer. And I'm never really anxious to stop what I'm doing and pray. Because there is a spiritual battle that goes on, kind of an invisible to us force field, that keeps us from doing what we need to do the most. We need to settle ourselves down and connect with the heart of God. We need to connect with God's heart for our life, for our friends. It's the most loving thing that you could do for someone that you for the most important one another that you could do for someone else. You know, when I was so discouraged about my brother just rejecting me and rejecting Christianity, I went to my pastor, Frank Barker, the pastor of Briarwood Church, which is where Kansas Outreach really started. And I told him the story, and I was just so broken and disheartened. And I said, Irvin Barker, I don't know what to say to him, and I don't know what to do. And he said, uh, you know, he listened, and the whole thing said, well, uh, you know, he kind of gave me some general advice and perspective on God's sovereignty and trusting God to change. So I kind of came back to, Irvin Barker, I don't know what to say. And I don't know what to do. So he, I kind of pushed him a little bit to give me, you know, I want to I know what to say. I want to know what to do. So he said, well, Mike, I would make a decision uh, to never bring up spiritual things uh, to your brother again. That's the first thing he said. I didn't expect that. The second thing he said was, I would commit to pray, if you feel this strong, to pray every day that God would not only touch his heart, 
but God would bring somebody into his life that he would and could listen to. Obviously, he can't and won't listen to you. So, one, I would commit to never bringing up anything spiritual to him again. I didn't expect that from the preacher. Two, to pray that God would work in his heart and bring somebody in his life that he would listen. And three, to be ready. The third thing he said was be ready for when he brings up spiritual things for you to, in a very winsome, but also in a very clear and understanding way for you to be able to respond when he shows interest. Well, it's like, wow, man, that is heavy duty. But uh, I saw I went to some friends and I said, I want y'all to start praying with me. I want you to help me pray regularly for my brother and my father. I want you to help me to be reminded not to bring up spiritual things with them. Oh, he said, and, and ask God to, to let them see the difference in your life so much so that they want to, you know, they want to ask about that difference. So, um, in one sense, that was very freeing because it was a burden lifted that I wasn't responsible for uh, sharing the gospel, changing his life, transforming him. And, and I would say that that's the third thing I would say. If you're if you're seeing if we're seeing things happen on the campus in powerful ways, it's because a group of students are committed to praying regularly. I remember at Valdosta State the year that they saw 79 people in the second semester pray to receive Christ. And just think about that on your campus. If you had 80 people on your campus come to know Christ, uh, that would be kind of the shot heard around the campus. I think it was, it, this is a campus of 7,000 students, but two believers. It was, it was like this revival was breaking out. And uh, as you, uh, this was right, I think Ken, what Ken Curry was at Valdosta, he was, it was the year that Rupert Leary took over. I think Ken was still there. But uh, obviously, all the other campuses were like, well, what are they doing? And they just made a commitment that they were going to pray every day at 6 a.m. The staff were going to pray. There was a little chapel right across the street from the campus. They were, they were going to pray for, uh, I think they prayed for an hour. 30 minutes is personal worship and 30 minutes intercession. And they said, we're going to pray every day. And we're going to pray if nobody else comes, but we're going to invite the students to come as much as you can. And really, it began to be, uh, to a great degree, the defining moment of that campus ministry where they just said, you know what, more than, more than dynamic meetings and recruiting co conferences or retreats and having Bible studies, we're going to be known as people who pray. And uh, it's pretty, it pretty interesting that, that was the, that's the, the most that I know of, the most people who've ever come to know Christ in a semester anywhere that I can recall that's involved with campus outreach. Uh, was that semester, and from January to May, they prayed every day, and I would say that's, you know, would be a one another commitment that um, I would encourage you to make. Let's uh, keep going, I'm going to, and the last thing about love is that discipleship teaches, to, teaches us to love our neighbor. Um, if you think about it, what was Jesus' radical conspiracy to change the Roman Empire and eventually the whole world? Just think about it, okay. The Jews wanted to kill him, and did. Uh, they uh, plotted plans and strategies to, to snuff out the influence of the followers of Jesus after he was dead. They were, you know, arresting and trying to put the leaders of this little movement 
uh, you know, behind bars? What, what was this grand conspiracy that strategy that Jesus was working to over, overflow, overthrow the, uh, not only the, the Jewish religious presence in the city of Jerusalem, but all the Roman Empire. It was a pretty radical uh, strategy. It was just this. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, change the world. Love your neighbor. Uh, love your neighbor and declare to the whole world that Jesus Christ lives. Love your neighbor and uh, love your enemy and love people who can't love you back. That was the strategy. And uh, what's so powerful about that is when you learn how to live in the love of God and you learn how to live uh, in mission with others and you're praying and you're saying yes to opportunities, what it's going to do is it's going to move you to uh, and motivate you to demonstrate, this is the fourth thing I would say is a practical thing, demonstrate your commitment to love by building friendships with those who may or may not ever love you back. I'm not against friendship evangelism, and I'm all for evangelism. But I think that the heart of what <coughs> Jesus is getting at here when he says, love your neighbor, love your enemy, the Good Samaritan, is Christians should be so committed to building friendships of love with those that are outside the kingdom that they will love them even... If they never love them back, they never go to a Bible study, they never pray to receive Christ, they never join their church, they never go on a project, they never say that, I'm with you. What we're called to do is to say, well, we're with you. You may never be with me, but I'm with you. And uh, it's called love. It's a radical strategy. You want to change your campus? Decide, well, we're going to love radically. We're going to love people who may not love us back, may not do what we ask us to do. You know, love is freely accepting another person and being committed to seeking their good. Think about that. Freely accepting them and seeking their good. And what makes it more radical is that you do that as a believer with people who either don't deserve it or can't return the favor. And that demonstration is... What Jesus said will set us apart from all the world who always tends to love with a hook or um, um, with an agenda or with you know some kind of payback in mind. This uh, New Year's conference in Jacksonville, we had uh, uh conference. We had one, as one of our speakers Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a professor at Syracuse University. And she actually, um, she's a professor of women's literature and uh, women's studies in literature at a certain time period. But uh, she actually had, she was a, a lesbian and uh, was, uh, had written the policies for uh, equal rights, non-discrimination policies to protect homosexual rights, this was back in the 80s, that she pushed that policy on Syracuse University that adopted, it was the first uh, public university to adopt a non-discriminatory policy for, to include not just racial discrimination or gender discrimination, but also uh, discrimination, protection against discrimination from sexual orientation. That policy was taken and 
and uh, was the policy that was used in all the universities rewriting their policies that eventually led to that base policy was the policy that the governments used to rewrite their policies, which, you know, eventually the military rewrote their policies. And so she was on the cutting edge of the front end of um, uh, the whole gay lesbian uh, movement. Um, and uh, she, uh, the big promise keepers rally came to Syracuse and thousands of men came and uh, they, uh, uh, she, she wrote an op-ed piece about that from a perspective of a woman and a lesbian and how that offended her. And she said that she just had these thousands of letters that were written to her. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine just, you know, just bombarded with letters. And she said, so she, uh, she'd open up a letter, and uh, if this was a letter that was really supportive of what she did, she put it in the favor. And this is a, you know, they favor me pile. And over here was the enemy, the people who uh, were against me. And she said that she'd just kind of read the first line or two of the, the pile of the person who's against her, the Christian who was basically telling her how wrong she, she said the piles were, you know, kind of adding up. And she came across a letter from a pastor of her, of the small, uh, she didn't know him, but a pastor in Syracuse. And she read the letter, and she didn't know which pile to put it in. <laughs> and so she threw it away. It made her so uncomfortable, she threw it away. And she said that that night, she, she said, she felt like that was probably it's like you know I'm not that insecure or whatever so she went and got the letter out of the, out of the garbage can but she still couldn't figure out which pile to put it in so she put it in the middle uh, and she went to bed the next day she got up and she just threw it put it back in the garbage can before she went to work she didn't even read it she put it back in the garbage can and uh, so she's at work and she's thinking about it she was like why does this have so much power over me? You know, she kind of got angry about it, so she went home. She took it out of the garbage can, and she read it again. And what was so radical about it was, here, he was basically saying, he, she couldn't put him in a box, because he was saying, I would like to talk to you, and I want to understand why you, you know, and, and I'm so, I'm so sorry for the way that Christians have made you feel um, you know, in an unfair way, they have judged who you are and what's your what's what's important to you. Would you come to dinner with my wife and me? And I'd love to talk to you. And it was it was screaming love. Now everything in her wanted to reject that, but it was so powerful. And so she went to dinner with him, and she said that he prayed. He, he prayed like she'd never heard before. He prayed for her. He prayed in repentance. He said, in front, a, pa a pastor in front of me talking about his sins and talking about his weaknesses. And they began this dialogue that went on for several years to the point where she eventually started coming to his church and eventually she committed her life to Christ. And uh, so when she talked, she's now a pastor's wife. And uh, she's a homeschool mom, and uh, she wrote this book. Uh, <laughs> can you believe it? And uh, she wrote this book called An Unlikely Convert, and it went viral. And it sold, and so she's been, she's been speaking all across the country on her story. And of course, what's so amazing is now the people that are opposing her were the people that she used to organize. She would organize these 
basically, you know, protest parades and tell far around the country and tell uh, the LGBT, they get them all, uh, organizations um, how to protest properly. And she, she said, now they come and they protest at my speeches. But she's so motherly and she's so caring. And uh, what changed her? Well, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit changed her, but it's the power of love. And uh, so I'm all for friendship evangelism. There's something about friendship uh, that's really, you know, that's, that's really a demonstration of our love. And um, I think that God can get around to the evangelism part. Um, I think generally as Christians we have more of a problem learning how to be friends with people that are different than us. I think we ought to learn how to talk about Jesus, don't get me wrong. But I think the friendship part where we genuinely show people that we love them with no strings attached is a real challenging thing. I'll tell you this quick story. Um, our four children are, two of them are out of college, two are off of college. The youngest just went uh, this fall, so technically we're an empty nest, right? And uh, my wife, I think, started feeling a little, having an old midlife crisis, like, what are we going to do, you know, an empty nest or whatever. So uh, she invited a staff girl to come live with us. The staff girl was moving to town, didn't have a place to live. So before I knew it, it was like, well, you know, she's going to stay in Anna's room, and she needs a wife. Okay, that's fine. So then she told me, uh, about a month later, she said, some of the uh, people at the school called me, and there's two Chinese boys that went to school at our Christian school last year, but their host families are not able to host them, and I think that we ought to host them. Well, the staff girl was not a really big deal for me. I was thought, yeah, you know, like, you know, she'll just be up there in Anna's room, and she's not going to mess with my world, but I just started thinking about Two Chinese boys, uh, like, are going to live in our, like, you know. So I asked a couple of questions, like, well, we're going to get more information about this, right? She said, well, we'll see. Yeah. So um, it got closer to the time, and she said, hey, I, 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 went, I think I'm gonna, I want to say yes to this. And I started thinking, like, I don't know that I want two Chinese boys living in my house. You know, like, I, I live in, I have a ministry, and I have children. Okay, I have a ministry out there, and I have children out there. I don't want ministry in here, and I don't want children in here. And I'm not sure I want to. And she, she said, well, they, they don't have a place to live. This is something I like, something we could do. And uh, I remember we, we were going to the airport to pick the boys up, and uh, we got there, and the lady that's the host of, of the school program was standing next to us, and it just hit me. Why did the host families not want these boys to come back and live with them? So uh, <laughs> I turned to Kelly and I said, I can't believe we haven't asked this question. Uh, you know, here we are. I mean, the plane literally is landing. You know? It's like, why did they not want, want their host families want them to come back? Well, she just looked straight ahead and made no eye contact with me. And she said, well, one, uh, they said that he's uh, very obstinate, disruptive, and rebellious and won't obey you know, any directions we get. And the other... Uh, is his English is so poor they can't communicate. And so she didn't even flinch. It was like the plane's landing. I'm like, this, this is a conspiracy. You know, y'all set me up. I didn't want these boys in the first place. And, and you didn't tell me this. And they're really going to ruin my life. That's how I felt, you know. And uh, so they got off the plane. And we kind of hugged them. And I'm like, oh, I'm just driving home. And I just feel like I shouldn't be angry, you know. But... I really feel 
kind of invaded. They, they've been, they're invading. The Chinese are invading, you know. <laughs> and they're, they're invading my house, and they're taking over my life. And I was just trying to envision what this is going to be like. Well, uh, it was fairly, you know, mild, and, you know, there wasn't any, you know, really surprising uh, the first night, you know, they went to bed all day. The next morning, I got up, and I was having a little quiet time, and reading the Bible, and the Holy Spirit just kind of tapped me on the shoulder. It's like, not literally, it was like the Holy Spirit said. So you got a problem with the Chinese boys. Yeah, let's talk about that. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. No, stay my Bible here. No, you got a problem. What's your problem? And uh, really, I just said, well, Lord, my life is ministry. I'm pouring my life into college students. I have children. I don't want to come home and it's like it never ends, you know? It's just going to be, you know, I, I just, I don't, have the, I don't have the resources to take care of them. And it was like the Lord said, I'm not asking you to save them. I'm not asking you to, I'm not asking you to do anything but just love them. Love these boys who may never love you back. You know what? I do that every day. Every day I take care of people that ignore me and don't love me back. A lot of them are Chinese, by the way. <laughs> and the, the God of the universe is very comfortable loving those who don't love him back. Just love them. Trust me. And I want you to know. It's been a really, after that first night, it's been a great experience. And I don't know where they got that they were obstinate and rebellious and they've improved on their English. But they're really delightful. It's been a great experience. And also love the fact that I don't have to ask them how your grade's doing. You know, I also said, have a great time today. You know, I don't worry about, you know, I'm not worried about what, you know, they're going to be able to get into college, what they're going to make on their SAT. You know, so just love these kids. Just bless them. You know, just take care of them. It's a really freeing thing. It's really how ministry ought to feel, you know. Ministry ought to be that way, you know. You're not, all you're called to do is love them and, and bless them. And uh, God takes care of that. God changes them. Um, Michael Phelps is uh, one of my... Uh, I'm, I'm obviously incredibly impressed by him as a, as a uh, athlete. And word is, you know, he obviously has some uh, uh, eccentric, his eccentricities uh, make life hard for him when he's not in the swimming pool. But uh, he's a pretty amazing athlete. I think he's supposedly saying he's going to train, he's training again for another Olympics. But, um, you know, I just want to close by asking this question. Are you really preparing your life today for being a man or a woman on mission for the rest of your life? Is that what you're preparing for? You know, if you, uh, if you ask Michael Phelps, you said, you said, uh, you do all this training every day, four hours a day, and you, you know, in the pool, out of the pool, cross training. You're doing all these things. What do you do that for? And uh, if he said, I've just always wanted to be the lifeguard at my neighborhood pool. I've just thought, you know, if I could be the lifeguard, not only would I get all the girls' attention, but I would just, that would just be, you know, a goal that's just really worthy of my life. So you think about it. Trains four hours a day. He's, you know, in competitions all over the world. 
and he's got that, he's got that size ambition, you know, it doesn't seem to match, right? Or what if it was the other way? What if you said, Michael, what is your goal? What is your ambition? What are you training for? What are you preparing for? He said, I want to be the greatest swimmer that's ever, ever lived in the history of the world. I want to be the greatest swimmer. And you said, really? You want to, he said, the most gold medals, the most accomplished. I want to be the greatest swimmer. Well, what are you doing to prepare? Well, every Saturday morning, I get up. After I wake up, it's 10 or 11, you know, just, I go down to the swimming pool, and I swim from one side of the pool to the other. <laughs> I do it every Saturday morning. <laughs> I'm preparing to be the greatest swimmer that ever lived. We could say, ambition, you know, grand, lifestyle, scrawny and puny, right? Tiny. You probably say to him, change your goal or change your lifestyle, right? <laughs> change your goal or change your lifestyle. And I guess I want to ask you, are you living a lifestyle of a person on mission? Are you living a lifestyle that says, this is my ambition, and if it is, are you lying to yourself? Well, that's really what discipleship is all about. Uh, lastly, i got to go back to Lewis and Dwayne. Lewis uh, played the Super Bowl. Uh, he actually had a chance to intercept Joe Montana and save the win for the Cincinnati Bengals. He dropped the ball two plays late. Two plays later, John Taylor, Jerry Rice. Taylor caught a pass, and then Jerry Rice. I think it was Jerry Rice caught a first down. Taylor caught a touchdown, and the, they lost the 49ers. He was. Uh, have you ever seen those Geico commercials where? Icky Woods is doing a little Icky Shuffle now. Like, who is that guy? He actually played for the Cincinnati Bengals. But uh, Lewis and Icky Woods were big buddies. They did the Icky Shuffle after every Cincinnati Bengal win. This is you know, way before your time, I'm sure. But, uh, but then he went on to play for the Green Bay Packers. But uh, Lewis was with a teammate driving down I-4 in Orlando going 104 miles an hour, flipped his Corvette, and uh, died found, you know, blood alcohol um, percentage or content, you know, way above uh, the acceptable level. And a really tragedy. Dwayne, on the other hand, um, was sitting at his desk September 11th at the Pentagon and protecting our nation, doing what uh, he was called to do faithfully. And a plane flew in the side of his building and killed him. And uh, at some level, you could say it was a tragedy. But Dwayne and Lewis had been in that Bible study, that football player's Bible study. And Lewis was always like, I'm going to commit my life to Christ, but I'll do it later. But Dwayne committed his life to Christ. Not only did he grow in college, but he married a girl who was a believer, raised three children. And uh, his death was a glory. Lewis's death was a tragedy. And that's where we're all headed in our lives. We're going to have a mission that's either going to be a glory or a tragedy. And as it relates to how we connect ourselves with the mission that outlives death and lives beyond even our own lives, we become transcendent or we disappear 
and nobody even knows our name. And uh, so, my challenge to you and my challenge to your, your teams is to grow in love, first in your love for God, secondly in your experience of His love, secondly in your love for one another, and then lastly in your commitment uh, to love your neighbor. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for rescuing us, coming down and giving us a mission that's worthy of our lives. We ask you, uh, even now, as school starting back, new semester at each of these campuses, that you would build a team of people committed to living radically, uh, to live out the love of Christ and to share that love with others. And I pray that we'll tell stories about Bethel and stories about Northwestern and St. Thomas and St. Cloud State and the U of M, stories about your faithfulness to this group of believers and how you use them in big ways because missions is taking unlikely people and doing impossible things. I pray that you would give them vision to invest their little seeds of faith, little steps, Lord, of investment, and it would bring about uh, transformative spiritual change, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at clminneapolis.org.